Are there any fans of American Idol here this morning? Not very many. Man, this is a hostile crowd. This might not... This might backfire on me because I'd almost hate to admit it, but we do watch this show as a family. And as you know, it's just uh, getting started. I do have to admit that I have a certain distaste for any show with the word idol in it. We probably have way too much celebrity worship as it is. But if you're familiar with the show, rarely do the contestants sing an original song. They sing what are known as cover versions. These are songs that we are already familiar with. And the key is not to copy the original exactly, but to recreate it and make it your own. The judges are constantly urging the contestants to be yourself and to you know, bring your own style to the song. However, you don't want to change the song too much for fear of losing what made it appealing in the first place. And if you watched uh, this past week, incidentally, if anybody did, I don't... There weren't very many of you, unless you just didn't want to admit it. Maybe that was really the issue. Uh, you have to admit that uh, James Durbin's performance of Judas Priest, You Got Another Thing Coming, was really good. But I digress. Anyways, in some respects, Second Thessalonians could be considered a cover version of First Thessalonians. The content and format are very similar, but the tone has changed much but not all, of Second Thessalonians seems like a little bit like a, a harsher version of, of what was said more gently in First Thessalonians. And last week, Pastor Ken had us look at First Thessalonians and introduced us to this very young church located in what is now northern Greece. The church was going through some struggles, and Paul wrote to encourage them. And this morning, as we continue looking at Paul's letters to churches and individuals, we're going to look at this second letter to the Thessalonians. And so let me introduce it to you. Thessalonica was the capital city for the Roman province of Macedonia. Paul planted this church in this city sometime around uh, 48 to 51 AD. He was eventually forced to leave the city, and so he wrote the first letter to address the struggles that they were facing. Now, we don't know for sure... But what probably happened is that a a few months after writing the first letter, excuse me, Paul got a report that a new crisis had surfaced. In the first letter, Paul wrote about the second coming of Jesus. Apparently, there were some who were so excited about Jesus coming again, which is a good thing, that they were gullible enough to believe a rumor that he, in fact, had already returned. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, Paul writes this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. See, they were probably not really sure what this coming of the Lord meant, but it seems that they were somewhat confused, as Paul says they were unsettled by this and alarmed or agitated. And apparently for some, it caused them to stop working. No more uh, a little later about that. Now, we're not really sure how they got this idea that Jesus had returned, but Paul mentions just in that verse there are three things. He says it could have come from a prophecy, and perhaps there was somebody, an individual within the church that had this prophetic utterance that Jesus had returned, which, of course, was false. There was maybe a report in the sense that they received a message that somebody had had brought to them that this has already happened. And he even makes reference to what may have been a forged letter 
made it look like it came from Paul, right? Did you catch that? When it says, a letter supposed to have come from us. And so somebody was kind of sending a letter around saying that, oh, you know what Paul wrote about, about the second coming. Well, guess what? It already happened. Now, it's possible that they also simply misunderstood what Paul taught about the second coming in his first letter. And so Paul gets this report, and immediately he writes them another letter to sort things out. And he authenticates this letter in his own handwriting, you know, to try to distinguish it from some of these forgeries that might have been floating around. So he writes in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. This is how I write. So even though most of the letter would have been dictated to a secretary that would have taken down what, uh, what Paul dictated, Paul adds this comment in his own, own handwriting, much like we might put a signature on a letter today. And the letter basically has three major topics. He starts in chapter 1 about a reference to thanksgiving and prayer and just more encouragement from them. And it's clear from these verses that Paul is big on the Thessalonians. They inspired pride in him. He says in verse 4 of chapter 1, among God's churches, so as they travel to other churches, he says, we boast about your perseverance and faith. Can I just say this in passing, that you do the same for us? I'm, I'm sure that Pastor Ken would agree, and he has the similar experiences that I do, and we maybe meet with other pastors or friends ask me about TCC and about our ministry here. I think I try to conceal my pride a little bit, but it's hard. I probably don't do a very good job about it. Because I love to tell about your desire for relational connectedness, your desire to grow deeper, your generosity. I get excited about telling people about the plans for new building right in the, the heart of Twilliger to serve the vision of serving the people of Twilliger. I tell about the cost, no doubt, about this building and about how God has already provided over $3 million in gifts and commitments. Of course, I tell about the brunch. You can't forget about the brunch because it's just a great thing that, that we get to rejoice in every week, right? But all of these things, honestly, you bring so much joy to us that we take pride in that. Hopefully not in a boastful, arrogant way, but just to say, you know what? We love this church and we love pastoring it. And that's how Paul felt about the Thessalonians. He also writes then in chapter 2 about the second coming again because this was where some of the confusion was. And so most of chapter 2 covers this teaching. The day of the Lord, as it were, or the second coming of Jesus is a significant issue that Paul addresses. And then we'll see in chapter 3 um, that he addresses what we shouldn't do while we're waiting. But let me just say this. From these verses, it's very clear that Jesus is coming back. He hasn't come back yet, so let's not believe any rumors or prophecies or reports or maybe a forged letter that you received. But like I said, this is really the main reason that Paul wrote the letter. Some people had been telling the Thessalonians that this day had already come. And Paul assures them that this is not true, and then he goes on to give them further teaching about the Lord's return. And I have to tell you, I struggled with whether or not I should include much of this, but I also thought, you know, it's pretty central. I don't want to just skip over it and miss it. And so I'll try to do my best to kind of just wade through this a little bit. Now, the issue about the second coming is that there's, not a, there's a lot that we don't know. In fact, Paul wrote in his first letter in chapter 5 and, one and verse 1 and 2, he says, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you 
For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And how does a thief in the night come? He comes unannounced, right? He just surprises you if he comes during the night. None of us want to have that experience, but we understand the the analogy. He even goes on to compare the timing of the coming of Jesus like the sudden onset of labor pains for a pregnant woman. Again, what a great analogy, right? You know that it's coming, it's coming soon, you're moving towards that, but you don't know when the day or the moment, suddenly there it is. And all of you who've had, well, most of, you know, well, I'll stop there. (laughs) But, But Paul, while not giving any indication of the timing especially here in chapter 2 in in 2 Thessalonians, he does give an overview of a sequence of events that will happen. And so that is something that we know. He says that Jesus won't return until what he calls the man of lawlessness appears, and then he will launch a final and ultimately futile opposition to God. He writes this in chapter 2 and verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Right? He's addressing the fact that they had already been deceived. They were gullible. Some believe that it already happened. He's saying, no, no, no. Don't let anyone deceive you, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Jesus won't return until after this rebellion occurs, he says, and this man of lawlessness is revealed. And in verse 7, he says that the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And so right now, this man of lawlessness, which incidentally is the only time uh, that Paul writes about this individual, is being held back by someone or something. And we don't know what it is. But at some point, this restraint is going to be removed. This lawless one will be revealed, and he will declare himself to be God. That's a key thing. And then... This is even better. Jesus will literally blow him away. Look at what he says in verse 8 of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And so what does that mean? Well, again, some details are missing for us, and it kind of leaves us a little bit in the dark. In fact, Paul, in writing here, he says in chapter, in verse 5 and 6, he says, Don't you remember, he's reminding the Thessalonians, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So he had verbally told them these things. Now he's writing them saying, well, don't you remember what I told you? And that now you know what is holding him back. So he had told them what was holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. The problem is, is we don't know what things the Thessalonians knew. And we don't know what is holding him back. But apparently they did. And so this imagery is obviously somewhat, um, uh, as one writer puts it, hazy and ambiguous. And many people throughout time have tried to figure out who or what this restrainer is, and many guesses have been made ultimately about this man of lawlessness, which incidentally is probably the Antichrist that John mentions um, in his letters. And frankly, in my humble opinion, trying to figure this out is mere speculation and a waste of time, effort, and resources. 
In fact, the record of attempts to determine the identity of the Antichrist goes back over a millennium and a half. Sure, you know, sooner or later, someone will be right. But there have been so many that have been wrong. My favorite book in my library is titled, Why Jesus Christ Returns in 1988. Apparently, the author was wrong. But I keep it to remind me that this whole issue of setting a date is foolish. In fact, Augustine in the 5th century said this about these verses, and I love this, because he said this, I must admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. And if he can acknowledge that, I think I'm in good company. You know, we don't know. It's still a mystery. It's still a puzzle. But one thing is sure, that Paul is confident that those who love the truth, those who know Jesus, will know when it happens. It will be unmistakable when Jesus returns. And it's clear that Jesus wins. But all of this understanding and thinking about Jesus coming back again created a problem. There was this problem in Thessalonica. It was a problem that we might refer to as idleness. And so this is another topic that Paul addresses then in chapter 3. He mentioned it in his first letter, but this time he adds, adds an interesting command in chapter 3 and verse 10. And maybe this jumped out at you when Pastor Ken read it. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now it's important to note that the issue is not that a person is unable to work perhaps due to illness, disability, or just even having a job available. I mean, you know, in the times that we, economic times that we live in, some people just can't find work. So it's not an issue of not being able to find work. The issue is whether or not the person is willing to work. You see, it was common in that time to share a meal together as a community of faith. But some... We might even call them lazy individuals, appeared to have taken advantage of this. They may have spiritually rationalized this. They may have said, oh, we're not working because we're devoting ourselves to prayer. Or more likely, given the teaching about the second coming of Jesus, they may have said, work? No, we're waiting on the Lord. Remember, they were confused. Some even thought the day of the Lord had already come. So they were essentially like loitering for Jesus, just hanging out. And it was interesting. I heard, I think, a couple of uh, comments there when it said, you know, they're not being busy. I mean, they're not working. They're being busy bodies. What they're up to is really a disruption to the the whole community. And so he had some really blunt words for them there. Now, Paul may have actually even been addressing rich people who had no need to work and instead had gotten themselves involved in being busy bodies. But whatever the case, he makes it clear that those who were unwilling to work, remember, that's the key, were to be excluded from the community meal. It was just a way of pointing out that, you know, this is a serious issue. And if they had any doubts as to what Paul meant, he tells them that they should follow their example. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they worked hard. They worked full-time, and and, and Paul likely was a tent maker full-time. And then on the side, carried out the ministry, shared the gospel, planted churches, far from being idle. Now, it seems to me, and I, I may be wrong about this, 
But maybe we've made a bit of an idol out of idleness. You see, idolatry, when you think about it, is having other gods. If we wonder what our idols are, we we could ask ourselves some very penetrating questions, okay? What do we value most? What comes to mind? Or what do we live for? What is the object of our worship? If it's anything other than God, we are idolaters worshiping created things. And these things become gods to us. And in our culture, for for most people, being idle or lazy is probably not the issue. In fact, the opposite may be true. And being busy uh, simply becomes a means to enjoy what we've earned. Right? So we work, and we work hard, so we can enjoy the comforts of life. We buy toys. We want to enjoy our leisure time. I mean, isn't everybody working for the weekend? And not that there's anything inherently wrong with rest. In fact, it's commanded or pleasure. God says he gives us all good things for our enjoyment or even leisure. But as Tim Keller says, when we turn good things into ultimate things, we are spiritually addicted. You see, we tend to view work as a way to earn our leisure time or to buy things to enjoy during that leisure time. But then what do we do with our time? Research has shown that the average Canadian watches about 22 to 30 hours of TV every week. That's three to four and a half hours a day. And that may seem like a lot. And I kind of thought, well, that doesn't apply to me. And I started doing the math. Well, I watch at least an hour of news every day, right? Throw in maybe a, a hockey game or during the NFL season, four or five football games. You know, it adds up pretty quick. American Idol, Amazing Race, you know. And it doesn't take long, and it adds up. Internet use is now about two and a half hours per day. Think about it. Just those two leisure pursuits consume on average five to seven hours per day. And furthermore, we long for and even work and save for retirement so that we can eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I'm not saying that that's what all retirees do. But think about the advertising around saving in an RSP implies. Right? Isn't it just to enjoy the good life? Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a recent retiree. Now, I won't give any details for fear of him hearing this message, but it's safe to say that he's not connected to CCC, so none of you know him, okay? Because I'm about to say, what, I'm just about to tell you what he said. And, and so he was going on and he was telling me about his career and how successful he was and how he's now really re- enjoying retirement. And so I just asked him, I said, so what do you do with all your time? play shuffleboard. Inside I'm going, shuffleboard? Really? That's what you do with your time now? And he was a pretty young retiree. I'm thinking, shuffleboard? Really? I mean, if it was golf, I could at least understand and appreciate that. But really, shuffleboard? Is that what we look forward to doing? 
Even retirees are, in essence, waiting for the Lord. And so all of us have to be responsible with our time and how we use that. And what do we do while we're waiting is really what the issue comes down to here as far as I understand it. Paul's saying, look, it hasn't come yet. But don't stop working. Don't stop doing nothing. You need to be active, but be active in the right things. You see, there's no doubt that Jesus is coming back. But we're encouraged throughout the Bible to view ourselves as living in the initial phase of the end times. Events are underway. There's no doubt that there are interesting events happening in our world today that the Bible talks about. I have no question about that. But we are also cautioned not to waste our time speculating about when Jesus is coming or even just waiting in idle anticipation. But rather, we are to spend our time preparing. We should look forward to this great event. We're going to see Jesus in all of his glory, even the glory that we sang about this morning. But in the meantime, we need to use our time well. You see, there's no doubt that thinking that Jesus will return any moment can be unsettling and alarming. I remember when I was young, I was thinking about that. I was probably in junior high. I couldn't really remember the timing, but I distinctly remember having a severe crisis in my life. I must have heard some teaching about the end times and about Jesus coming back, and it just freaked me out as a little kid. I actually remember being in tears, totally distraught with my mom trying to console me because I didn't want to continue going to school since Jesus was coming back. Now, all of you students, there's a novel idea, right? Just, you know, why bother with this? If Jesus is coming back, what's the point? But that's exactly what I started thinking. It may have been a clever way to get out of school, but honestly, it really was a crisis for me. The tears and the anguish was real. I remember just, why bother? What's the point? If this is all just going to end one day, I'm never going to, you know, see the rest of my life carried out because I thought it was going to be any time. And that's how some of the Thessalonians thought. You know, why work if... Jesus even has or will be soon coming back. Now, since I've matured since that time, at least I think I have, I'm reminded of Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians. He wrote this in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. He says, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I love that. Making the most of every opportunity. So what do we do while we wait? Knowledge of the future ought to shape and influence how we live in the present. And so I kind of mined through this letter, because that's what we were studying, to find some alternatives to idleness. And the first thing I think that we should be doing while we wait, instead of being idle, is to grow in our faith. In chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul commends the Thessalonians and gives thanks to God. He says, because your faith is growing more and more. Now, if we think that faith is something that either we have or don't have, then growing in faith may seem a little strange. 
But as John Stott observes, he says, faith is a relationship of trust in God, and like all relationships, is a living, dynamic, growing thing. And so under this whole umbrella thought of growing in our faith, what does that look like? There's a whole bunch of things that Paul uh, urged and commended the, um, the Thessalonians to do. At one point he says, stand firm then. Like really, you know, dig yourselves in. Stand firm on the truth that you already know. Hold to the teachings we passed on to you. Follow our example. Right? Having a, a mentor that is walking with Jesus and you just say, I want to I follow you. He says that, you know, that we know the truth. In other words, if we know the truth, then we can identify the counterfeits. We don't start by studying the counterfeits. When they train bankers or tellers or whatever to be able to identify counterfeit money, okay, they don't start with counterfeit money. They say, here's the real thing. Here's the test. Now it's all a lot more technologically advanced and things like that. They want to check money. But it used to be they, they could feel it. They could, they could know what a fake felt like by first knowing what the real thing was like. And so for us, about growing in our faith, it means studying our faith, understanding what is it that, that we believe. And I, I think for every one of us, a great investment, if you don't already have one, is to get a good study Bible to start there. Because some people say, you know, well, I read my Bible and don't quite understand it. Well, if you get a good study Bible, you can read it, and you read a phrase, and you're like, I'm not really sure what that means. And a study Bible has some good notes at the bottom. You can just follow down, and you go, oh, okay, I think I understand what that means. And so you're growing in your faith. You're learning by that. Even a good Bible dictionary, because there'll be something in the Bible you're not sure about, you can look it up, and it gives some explanation and understanding and meaning to that. But these are all little simple things that we can do to be growing in our faith. And rather than using our time to pursue you know, hours and hours of leisure activities, we should at least use some of that time to grow in our faith. Secondly, second thing we can do while we wait is to increase our love. Again, Paul praised the Thessalonians saying that the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. What a, what a wonderful thing to say about any group of people. The love that you have for each other is increasing. And wouldn't that be great for a, a great focus for us to have? That we would be able to quantify the love and determine that somehow, in fact, it is increasing. We, we can see it. It's tangible. We can feel it. So much more could be said about increasing our love. But let me just say this, that our love for others is ultimately what motivates us to serve others or to pray for others, to encourage them, because we want to meet whatever need they have. You know? and, and when people walk into a, a service like this, you know, they don't, maybe oftentimes they don't know anybody and they're not really sure. What a simple way to increase our love when we all make the effort to just say, Welcome. Hi, my name is so-and-so. And we, we, we just see that this becomes a, a welcoming and accepting place. And as I said earlier, I love just stepping back and watching that happen every week. Okay, Let's continue to do that. It's awesome. But let's pray that God would continue to increase our love. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing, right? Um, teach us how to love each other. It's a continual thing that we need to grow in. Third thing we can do is deepen our prayer life. There's a heavy emphasis on prayer in this letter. 
And Paul may have taken it for granted that they knew that this is something that they should do because he doesn't explicitly say it. But, but it's a great thing to do while we wait. I, I know that I need to, that I want to grow in this area. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul breaks into this spontaneous prayer for the Thessalonians. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he asks the Thessalonians, he says this, Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And then he returns to praying for them in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. What a great prayer, isn't it? Here's this planting pastor who wasn't with them, writes in this letter, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. So we can deepen our prayer life while we wait. Fourthly, we should continue to do what is right. Continue to do what is right. In chapter 3 and verse 13, he says this, And as for you... Never tire of doing what is right. Never tire of doing what is right. See, it's always right to do the right thing. And sometimes we get tired, but we keep on. And Paul was telling the Thessalonians that even though there were some that were taking advantage of their generosity, that they should continue to care for those who genuinely needed help because it's the right thing to do. It's always right to be others-oriented. You see, that's what makes idolatry so dangerous, right? We start to to worship self, and we become self-centered and self-serving, and our only concern might be me, myself, and I, and our comfort and our pleasure. But the right thing to do is to focus our attention on others. And lastly, we focus on Jesus. You see, we could spend a lot of time speculating about the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, all the stuff that I referred to uh, earlier. But our focus really should be on Jesus. Start there. It's like the part I said earlier about knowing the truth and loving the truth and, and, and being able to tell deceptive philosophies and teachings by first knowing the truth we need to focus on Jesus and know who He is and what He's done. And like the old Course says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Why? In the light of His glory and grace. And things on earth can mean a lot of things, but it may even include speculation about the Antichrist. But the first and last words in this letter to the Thessalonians are about Jesus and about His grace. And I think that you know, Paul understood that, the importance of focusing on Jesus. You can never go wrong. Keep coming back to that. Focus on Jesus. So yes... We should be waiting in anticipation. Jesus is going to return. And we should be watching for that, being ready for it. But we should also be working if we are able. 
And more importantly, we can then make good use of the time that we have, making the most of every opportunity. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday and marks the beginning of Lent. For some of you, based on your backgrounds, you may be familiar with this. Lent is a is a time of preparation for Easter, preparing our hearts through fasting and prayer, reflecting on what needs to change in our lives. It becomes really a, a season, 40 days, which, which historically and biblically has always been this time of preparation. But it's reflecting then on what needs to change in our lives and the season of soul-searching and repentance. The Lenten season is a very focused time of personal examination and confession. And without getting into details about fasting, it's typically a time when, where Christians give up something, right, in order to focus on Jesus and his work in our lives. Perhaps it's not something that, if you're from more of a Baptist tradition, that you're that familiar with, but maybe we should consider, in light of this teaching, is there some leisure activity that we spend a lot of time on? Giving up or at least reducing some significant amount. And instead, take that time that you've now saved and spend it growing in our faith, increasing in our love, deepening our prayer lives, doing what is right, and focusing on Jesus. And we're going to do that right now. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives the church instruction about the Lord's Supper, and he adds this. For whenever you eat this bread, which is a a symbol of his body, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, he says, until he comes. So this was something that Jesus himself instituted as a way of remembering what Jesus did, as as a means for where, by which we can give thanks for what Jesus has done for us. And he says that we need to do this until he comes. And since he has not yet come, but he will someday come, we need to be prepared and we prepare our hearts. And so even as we think about ultimately Easter and the ultimate celebration of and remembrance, first and foremost, of his death, and the celebration of his resurrection, that we would use this time between now and then to just to prepare our hearts and to examine our lives. What, what needs to change? What are the idols in my life? Where do I focus my attention? And as we begin right now by focusing on Jesus, you could simply in the quietness of the moment that we'll just take right now, just ask God, God, what are, what are some of the idols in my life? Are there leisure activities that have become an idol for me that I look forward to more than growing in my faith or deepening my prayer life? I say that humbled and deeply convicted myself because I know that there's things that need to change in my life. And so let's take that time just to start right now. And I want to encourage you to use, think seriously about what these next 40 days might look like for you.